I'm an alcoholic. My name's Keith. Most important thing that I can share with you is I'm not taking a drink of alcohol, nor have I used any kind of narcotics since May 11th, 1976, and for that I'm especially grateful. Glad to be here and glad to be sober. Thank the committee for inviting Sue and I to participate in our own recovery. It's always a, a privilege to be able to uh, participate with my wife and uh, the program. Uh, we got sick together and uh, would have been able to uh, come to the program and, and stay here uh, for 32 years. Sue and I have been in the program for 32 years. Our daughter's been in the program for 32 years. We haven't had any time off for good behavior, no sabbaticals, uh, every day uh, for over 32 years. And, uh, and the benefits of that have, uh, have been given to us and the blessings that we've received in that period of time. Sue and I have been together, I'd say almost 50 years. She says somewhere less than that, but I was drunk through... 15 years of it, so it seemed like an eternity to me. <laughs> but there are significant dates. I, I, I put it closer to 50 years because it was closer to 50 years ago that we first had sex, and that's where I start. <laughs> yeah. And the reason we have 50, almost 50 years of, uh, of uh, marriage is because we've had good sex. We've always had good sex, and we still do have good sex. I'm Going on 69 years old, and she's 65, and we have sex once a week, whether we need it or not. And uh, so we haven't had counseling for that. It's just been something that was uh, good stuff, and we just stick to it, you know. <laughs> so that takes care of that mystery. Uh, uh, <laughs> and she worked. She's out and on, and she was pre-out and She's worked. I, I, I'm a keen alcoholic. And I, I calculated that she had worked for 45 years, and over a 45-year period of time, she had an average income over 45 years of 40000 a year. Now, that's a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> that's a keeper right there, yeah. So, uh, you know, I love her. We're buddies. We're like the county fair. We just get bigger and better every year. And, uh and you know the amazing thing, I mean the good thing of, of it is that I'm fortunate that when I sobered up my wife uh, stayed with me and my daughter. And, uh, and we've been together, Alcoholics Anonymous, Alan on now team put a family back together and, uh, and I'm very grateful for that. That doesn't happen always and, uh, and, and it is in my case and I'm extremely grateful for it. Uh, my daughter can call the same phone number and talk to her mom and dad. Our granddaughter uh, can call the same phone number and talk to their grandparents. And, uh, and I'm grateful for that. And, and uh, you know, one of the things, our daughter's been with her man 20 years, and, and they have two little girls. And, uh, and we're, you know, her mother and father are her example. She calls us and, uh, and talks to us, and, uh, and we're her examples. Uh, I'm a retiree from UAW. I did 42 years in UAW, and, uh, and I retired from Boeing Aircraft in Long Beach, California. And, uh, and I'm grateful for that. That uh, has given me some retirement and some, uh, I've been retired for 10 years and I was able to have insurance and uh, retirement and, and be able to give my wife a new hip. She was able to get a new hip and that improved some things around the house, I can assure you of that. <laughs> it's amazing what a new hip will do for you. Put a little step in your step, I guarantee you. But. Uh, but I'm grateful to be able to, to uh, that's a form of uh, living amends that I've been able to make uh, t- towards my family. And, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm just uh, 
uh, an alcoholic. I'm just an alcoholic, just an alcoholic. And, uh, and I'm grateful that I know what I am and I know where I am. And I'm an alcoholic in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I'm in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, the world is a safer place, I can assure you. Uh, I don't know, maybe the program, uh, the committee picked the program, and, uh, and I'm grateful uh, because they got speakers that covered all bases. And I'm the token bad guy, so I'm the closer, I guess. And, uh, and uh, you know why they bring speakers in from out of town? There's a lot of good AA in this room, but they bring people from out of town because you don't know us. You don't have a chance to know our character defects, and you get us the hell out of here tomorrow before you get a chance to <laughs> find out all our character defects. So you can hear some AA, you know, in that program. So it's good. And, uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful uh, that I get to... Uh, participate in Alcoholics Anonymous in this form. The speaking is a form of service. And Sue and I looked in our, uh, you know, I keep a little log, meditation log, and, uh, and today, uh, 30 years ago today, we talked at our first convention. Uh, I was the AA, and, and uh, 30 years we've been doing this. And, uh, and, uh, and I didn't get to ask to speak because I was a great speaker. I got asked to speak because I was in AA, she was in Al-Anon, and our daughter was in, was in Alateen, and, and I got to talk the first 15 minutes, and then they got to talk 15 minutes. I used to tell what it used to be like. My daughter talked about what, what happened, and then Sue would close it because she was sober, and Al-Anon working the steps, and, and uh, we talked for a long time as a family. We were able to do it. Matter of fact, our daughter, when our daughter turned 19, she moved into Al-Anon, and she didn't want to speak as an Alateen anymore, and she went on into Al-Anon, and and has been very active in Al-Anon and still is. Sponsors a lot of women. She has ladies that she's sponsored for well over 20 years. And my daughter has a sponsor that she's had for over 27 years. The same sponsor. And, and uh, I'm very grateful for those things that have come uh, to us because of the program. I don't know if I was born an alcoholic or not, but when I had my first drink, an alcoholic was born. And I was very young. I go, I was born in the Texas Oklahoma Panhandle where the men are men and the sheep run scared. <laughs> and, uh, so you can tell the difference between a fairy tale and a Texas tale. <laughs> fairy tale starts out once upon a time and a Texas tale starts out, you're probably not going to believe this shit, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> I'm at least a fifth-generation alcoholic, and uh, that's not braggadero, but I hope that what I'm doing and what I continue to do, just maybe the chain is broken. Just maybe the chain is broken, because I, anything I would wish uh, uh, that maybe my daughter and granddaughter do not have to go down the road that, that Sue and I went. And uh, so far, that's been good news, and uh, I'm grateful for that. If you're going to be a budding alcoholic, if you're going to grow up in an alcoholic home, there's alcohol there, so it's real easy to get it on, and, uh, and I did. I started drinking, and I'm, uh, like I said, a fifth-generation alcoholic, and uh, <laughs> all the character defects of all the other alcoholics rolled down into me. I got them all. I was the family's best, worst example right off the get-go. There was every kind of an alcoholic you can imagine in there, and... Uh, and they rolled all into me, and I, I just uh, got in trouble right off the get, right off the get. And uh, by the time I was 12 and a half, 13 years old, I was locked up as a result of my drinking. And uh, I learned some things during that period of time that I've locked up. I learned how to survive and uh, a lot of other things that have helped me. I don't, uh, 
look back on that as a bad time. As a matter of fact, it was an educational time, and I'm grateful for that. I uh, got out of that uh, lockup situation uh, when I was equivalent to about a senior in high school. I actually performed and did life's little chores pretty good when I was locked up and had somebody that beat the heck out of me if I didn't do, you know, follow the rules. I, I functioned pretty good. But I learned how to uh, sniff the nurse's gas tank and and uh, and we'd cut up those inhalers that had benzedrine and dexedrine in and I was locked up in a four by eight cell but I didn't want to miss nothing so I'd take something to keep me awake for four or five days you know never have a problem with a second step and uh, I got out and uh, one of my character defects is you can line ten women up against the wall over there and I'll get the sickest one out of the bunch every time uh, there's some in here I can feel them <laughs> They're ready. They don't need to pack, you know. And, uh, and so I met and married this little gal because her daddy had a lot of money, and I got in trouble immediately. And uh, I was locked up in jail, and my father-in-law come to see me, and he said, I've got a lot of money. And I said, I noticed that. And he said, the reason I have a lot of money is because I don't make bad investments, and you're a bad investment. And uh, I started my abandonment issues. And I didn't know that's what it was if I... I had a better idea, I could have controlled it better. But at, at any rate, people started leaving me, and uh, consequently, I had to do a little time over that situation. They locked me up, and, and I learned some more things. You know, I learned some more things. I learned it don't make any difference whether you're pitching or catching, you're still playing ball. And, uh, I, you'll get it in a minute. <laughs> and I got out of there one more time, and I went home, and I went to a, a little dance, and I met. Uh, Sue, she was guarding the bathroom that I was hiding in, and because uh, I started to fight and it got out of hand, and and uh, and so when uh, when the fight was over, why she told me I could come out and the band was playing. She was handy. I asked her for a dance, and uh, I'm a quick study. And one quick dance, I found out she had a car, job, driver's license, money in the bank, place to stay, none of which did I have. And uh, I said, "Where you been, baby? I I've been looking for you all my life." And, <laughs> she said, where you been? I said, I just got out of the penitentiary. She said, well, I just got out of an unwed mother's home. And I said, oh, gee, let's give two people a break and start going together. And we did. <laughs> we dated for two weeks, and the people in that community nicknamed us Hatchet and Hammer. <laughs> it was just so violent. There was just so much violence, that it, and we called it foreplay. You know, I mean, it was just, there just wasn't any passion unless somebody was bleeding. And... Uh, and, uh, and it was just terrific, fantastic. And uh, she got pregnant and said I was a father. And I don't remember having that uh, discussion. I must have been crossing over the invisible line when that happened. Uh, but, you know, I'm a joiner. I, uh, I joined uh, whatever. And so I said, let's get married. And uh, you know, I told her, push the car around the block. If you're healthy, well, I'll marry you. And she was healthy. And so, and, uh, well, my friend told me that's how I take care of it, and it didn't work. So we got married, and, and she had this little girl, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know how to be a husband. I don't know how to be a father. I didn't even know what responsibility was till I was sober a while, and they said responsibility is the ability to respond. Oh, okay. And uh, so I started uh, working and doing things and uh, went to school and just whatever. Whatever's handy. I, I didn't have any problem doing whatever. I'd join anything, and, uh, but I wore things out. Alcoholics know when it's time to go. I know when it's time to go. You know, I know when it's time to leave. We just intuitively know when it's time to go. 
That doesn't mean we go, but we know when it's we have a gut feeling. I know. It's kind of like knowing you're going to throw up pretty soon. You know it. And uh, so I told her I need to move. A, a friend of mine named Lion Shorty told me I could get a job on a ranch 40 miles west of Long Beach, California. That's ocean. But oh, ye of little faith. And I told her that I could get a job out there, and we loaded up and took off and it was just insane and I was drunk and, and uh, we got in the car and we had an old station wagon and we put the dog and the cat and the kid in the back and we took off and it took us along. I stopped out in Arizona and looked at the petrified forest for a while. I was doing some animal tranquilizers and so I looked at some wood for a while. <laughs> Most people can make the trip three days but I, I was moving right along doing the best I could and it just made everybody crazy around me and I Got to California and got a drunken uncle to find me a house, and I moved into a, into a house that nobody lived in for a while. And there's a bunch of hippies lived on one side of me, and a biker gang lived on the other side of me. My kind of people, I knew them, and uh, I hadn't seen any hippies. They were dropping acid, taking all their clothes off, laying naked in the front yard, watching the sun come up and go down. I, but I'm a joiner. I went on and dropped some acid and went to see 2001. You know what? What the heck? Yeah, and. Uh, and I set up a little, uh, you know, place to work out and uh, and put her and the kid in the house and uh, you know. And I went off and did my thing. And uh, wherever I go, why something happens, I'm just one of those guys. You know, there's people who wait for things to happen, and there's people who watch things happen. Then there's people who make shit happen. I'm one of those guys. Wherever I go, I make stuff happen. Something is happening, baby. I guarantee you. you can tell by the sirens <laughs> and the number of cop cars that come and the number of people. Of course, one of the reasons I could do that is because I did a lot of speed. I like doing speed. It's like going 190 miles an hour with your feet nailed to the floor, you know? <laughs> you can see sound and hear color, baby, I'm telling you. And uh, it just enhanced my drinking. And I, I just got in more trouble, more trouble, more trouble. And I ended up in front of a judge. I'd been in a fight, and the guy, I was winning, and his brother hit me upside the head with a crescent wrench. And uh, so I'd been in a on a uh, jail gurney in the, in the hospital, and they sewed my ear back on, put this blood-soaked earmuff on me, and uh, you know I was pretty much a mess. I I had a old pair of cut Levi's and no shoes or socks, no underwear, no white beater T-shirt, all blooded up. You know, I was traveling pretty light, really. You know, <laughs> and I I end up in front of a judge, and the judge is talking to me about me, and he's got the right guy, and. Uh, I'm standing there, and, uh, and he wanted, you know, he's got my file. I'd been arrested 57 times for assault and battery and resisting arrest in a 10-block area of my house. This is before the cops shot you, you know. And, uh, but she'd never given me a, a, a running start. I said, for God's sakes, if you're going to call the police, let me at least get two blocks away. <laughs> and uh, so here I am in front of the judge, and the judge got me, and he, uh, he suggested I go to A&A. I've never been to a and I've been doing B&B myself. Uh, but I owe people in jail money, and I may be sick, but I ain't stupid. I don't want to go to jail. So whatever this A&A is, I'll try it. And so he had a guy come and get me, and he talked to me about AA and showed me where a meeting was. Took me over to the house. I went and laid down on an old vinyl couch, and I was bleeding, so I stuck to it. I'm laying there. She'd come home, she'd taken up carrying a butcher knife, and she'd come in there and 
She'd been to see a new lawyer, and he said I should go to AA, and I let her think it was her idea. Okay. I didn't tell her I was on a court card. And, uh, so come 8 o'clock, she come over and said, get up. We're going to that A&A meeting. And I don't think I wanted She stuck me with that butcher knife. I had some reference points on that, so I, <laughs> I got up. And now let me give you this picture. My house was painted four different colors because I lost interest easy. There was a Corvair and an Etzel parked out there with weeds growing up through the doors. There was a motorcycle stuck in the front of my house. I had this blood-soaked earmuff on, and I was traveling pretty light. She had a beehive hairdo on that had a can and a half of spray net in it. The family wagon was a baby poop brown pinto with no reverse. Had a hole in the muffler and went down the road crooked. And we drove up through the neighbor's yard and parked out in front of our house. My kid looked like a wounded animal. My German Shepherd dog had chewed all the hair off his body here where his mouth had reached. He had a permanent puff mouth, you know, where his lips were up all the time. The cat had a permanent puff tail. And we go out to get in the old wagon and headed for the A&A meeting. <laughs> I'm going to the A&A meeting. You know, she backs off out of there and takes off down the street. And we get over and pull up much like this. The church had a big sign, AA sign, AA. You know? and, and I remember looking in the door, and I remember I thought, well, if my friends see me going in there, they'll never have nothing to do with me again. That's called low-bottom snobbery, baby. I don't care where you come from. I come from that house, that situation, and I'm afraid to go in here for fear somebody will see me. She sensed my approach avoidance and whipped that butcher knife up in my face and said, let me tell you something, Slick, what time's the meeting over? I said, it's, I think it's over at 10. She said, I'll tell you something, Ace, if your ass comes out of that door before 10, I'm going to gut you. <laughs> now, you can keep me in AA me. you got a crazy woman circling the perimeter out there. I may be sick, but I ain't stupid. I ain't going out there. I stayed in there for a while, got the deal signed off down there with the judge, see, and she let me go by myself, and I got struck drunk immediately. Got drunk, drunker than Cootie Brown right off. And uh, I went to AA for the next four to six years. I don't remember because I wasn't counting. Drunk. Sometimes I'd come sober and get up at coffee break and go get drunk. Sometimes I'd come drunk, sober up on a car. I came out of a blackout in an AA meeting. That's scary. I would have left, but I didn't know who brought me. Huh? Never gets better. It always gets worse, and then it gets worser. You know, I'd go to them AA meetings. I'd hear somebody, "You got to cease fighting everything and everybody." Okay, I'd go home, and she'd get right out of my face. What'd you hear? What'd you do? I said, "You better get out of my face. You better get out of my face." She'd take one step closer, and I bam, I'd hit her, and big fight would be on. Then I'd be drunk. Then I'd come back, and I'd go to AA meeting. I'd honk and sniff on some of the girls. Yeah. I'd go home and I'd go in the front door and I'd say, get in the bedroom, I'm horny. She'd say, you haven't made love to me in years. You're a rotten, stinking old drunk. I said, well, I'll go downtown where the girls know me and like me. And I'd be off and be drunk. And I'd come back to AA and I'd sit in there and say, money, money's the problem. You got to stop writing them hot checks. I'd go home I'd say, you got to stop writing them hot checks. She'd say, I don't write them, you write them. And we'd have a big fight over money. And then I'd go down to the liquor store, write a hot check, and I'd be drunk again. <laughs> huh? 
I'd go over there and say, you got to get God. I'd go home and I'd say, we got to get God. My daughter said, look at my skin, Daddy. I've been baptized so many times down there with you going down that aisle. My skin looks like a prune. I'm not going with you no more. And then I'd go off down and get drunk and I'd be drunk again. See, I'd be drunk again because the same me will always drink again. See, the same me will always drink again. And I can't stay sober in an environment where I drank. See, and we had a drunk home. We had a drunk house. Everybody was nuts in there. And I couldn't get sober. See, I couldn't get sober. It wasn't their fault. They didn't know. We were all ignorant. See, I came to this program ignorant. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I know what it's like standing in my kitchen with a bottle of vodka early in the morning looking down the hallway. A little nine-year-old girl's down at the end of the hallway. She's got her chin on her chest and her hair's in her face. She's like a wounded animal. And I look at her. I turn around and I take a drink. I take a drink. I don't take a drink because I'm ashamed of what's going on in there, baby. I'll take you way past shame. Stick with me, slick. We'll go way past shame. I took a drink because I needed a drink because I had a phenomenal craving. I know what it's like to stand in front of that mirror and I'm looking at me. I'm looking at me in that mirror. There's something screaming out at me and there's not a sound coming out of my, my mouth. And I look in that mirror and there's a hole in the door where I probably stuck my foot. And a little nine-year-old girl is looking through the hole in that door. She didn't say, Daddy, come play with me. Don't beat me and Mommy. She didn't say nothing. She just wanted to know if what I was putting in me was going to work so she could get out of the way. And I'm standing in front of that mirror and I know... I know that whatever I'm putting in me better work. Something's screaming inside. Now, now it better work. Now it better work. Or we're all in trouble. And I did that one day at a time. I know what it's like to walk, crawl down the hallway, lip dragging drunk, lip dragging drunk, gurgling. Big time, Charlie. Nobody was saying, come talk to me, slick. And I crawl on my hands and my knees in there in my daughter's piggy bank and I pull that piggy bank out. And I bust that piggy bank and I separate the pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters. Because I ain't going to be showing nothing but silver when I go to the Connections house or the liquor store. No copper on my side. And looking over my shoulder, a 10-year-old girl looking at me, hiding in the closet. And being the very best father I could be, I give her a break. I let her shoot out behind me without giving her a good licking for catching me, stealing her money. You see, at that time, if you catch me... In my pitiful, incomprehensible, demoralizing situation, you can bet your bippy I'm going to put something on you that will overshadow what you saw me doing. And being the very best father I could be, I let that kid shoot out behind me without inflicting any more pain in her life. That's the best I could be. And we live like that not a day or a week or a month. We live like that for a number of years. See, we live like that for a number of years. We didn't know we could go anywhere else. I tried. I went everywhere. I joined the National Council of Alcoholism. I went to join Buddhism. Of course, I was snorting coke. That didn't work. <laughs> but I did it all. I'm a joiner, and I tried it all. The amazing thing about that is that my, Sue and Simone and I, we went to the bottom. We went to the gates of insanity and hell because we, we couldn't find anything. We couldn't find anything. We were searching for everything. I tell you what, I ran out of running room. See, I'm one of them kind of guys that runs out of friends and enemies at the same time. See, I run out of running room. I, I come to the program, people say, what am I going to do about my drinking friend? I don't have any. See, I wore them all out. And I'm grateful for the people in Alcoholics Anonymous because you keep drinking 
and you don't die, you're going to have to come back to AA. Yeah, back to AA. And I had to come back to AA. And I made a phone call, and this little guy came and did a 12-step call on me and put me in a detox. See, that's something I never had. I never had been detoxed. See? I mean, nothing. I said, how about some hard candy and Valium? No, detox. Eat a banana. You need potassium. Eat a banana. Shut up. We'll tell you when you can say something. They were mean to me. <laughs> they were mean to me. When I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and, and it hooked, they set the hook in me and I sobered up. They didn't pat me on a poo-poo and say, we've been watching you. They didn't trust me. I didn't trust myself. There was 39 of us in this detox. And after a few months, they let us out. And the day before they let us out, they let us sit in a circle. And we kind of took each other's inventory. And God has a funny sense of humor. And he started on my left, and they went around. 38 people said I was going to get drunk when I got out of there. They gave me my first AA resentment. I stayed sober a year and a half on that one. (laughs) (laughs) And I learned something else. Screw the vote. I didn't come here to win a popularity contest. I came here to get sober. So I'm the only one out of 39 that's still sober. So it isn't a popularity contest, and I didn't win the vote. I'm the least one, least likely to succeed. But I got something because there was something two inches behind my belly button that made me willing to be willing. See, willing to be willing. People talk about desperation. You must have desperation. Baby, let me tell you something. You've got to have some desperation drinking before you can want to get sober, not desperation and sobriety. You better have you some desperation drinking. You better have gone to a point where you do anything for that drink. Then you'll do anything to stay sober. I'm willing today to do exactly what I have to do to stay sober, directly proportional to the pain that I went through to get here, Slick. I didn't come here because everything was wonderful, and I dropped in one day to see how your coffee and your donuts were. I drug my butt in here, tore up, tore up, and nothing had worked. Nothing had worked for me. And I'm grateful for the people in Alcoholics Anonymous over 32 years ago that spoon-fed me Alcoholics Anonymous. And I stand today on the foundation I was given of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they had the hard-hearted sponsors back then. The hard-hearted sponsors. They didn't give a hoot whether they hurt your feelings. They said, we're not here to please you. If we hurt your feelings, you don't even know what one is. If you're standing on it. I was like an ingrown hare. I was so into myself that you could be standing on my foot and I didn't even know you were there. And they assigned me a sponsor. And his name was Rotten Ron. And he was rotten. (laughs) They didn't give people nicknames back then because it was some flowery thing. He was rotten. He was nine years sober and he was rotten. And he come up to me and he said, I'm your sponsor. I said, oh, really? I hate you. He said, I hate you. It's not necessary that we like each other. He said, it's just necessary that you follow my directions. I said, well, what is a sponsor, a friend? And he said, no, if you want a friend, get a dog. So I got a dog. He hates me. There's a funny thing about my type of alcoholic. I'm a type 4 alcoholic. So when I saw a little chance for some sobriety, and, and, I, and I, was, I was willing to do whatever they said. It's an amazing thing. I was a tough guy out on the streets. I could hold my own. I was a tough guy. I was pretty mean, too. And I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I get a sponsor, and all of a sudden, 
All I want to do is what that sponsor said. You just turn inward. All of a sudden, I'm a goober. <laughs> all of a sudden, all I want is him pat me on the head. <laughs> Give me some approval. <laughs> Give me some approval, baby. Give me some. Tell me I'm doing all right. He said, do your four-step. And he gave me a matchbook and a little pencil. And he took the matches out of it and the paper clip so I wouldn't hurt myself. And he gave me this little pencil and he said, do your four-step right here. I said, oh, I'm telling you, I got some problems. I got some waves of the past rolling on me. This is not going to be enough. He said, yeah, it will. He said, put number one, you're a liar. Put number two, you're a phony. Put number three, you're stupid and there ain't no cure for that. I said, well, all right, <laughs> I think I can take it from here. And he come and got me in this old van, had a bunch of plastic milk crates in the back. And he put me and a bunch of other old newcomers in the back. And we were all a bunch of goobers in the back. And he takes off down the street, and we grab one of them milk crates, and he hits a light. Him and some other old-timers sitting in the captain's chairs. <laughs> and he hits a light. We slide up in the front. And then I said, I killed a man with my bare hands. You're treating me terrible. And he takes off and we slide to the back and some 300-pound newcomer falls on top of me. And I would have killed him, but I'm crying. <laughs> I said, shut up. We don't want to hear your stuff. They wouldn't let you say anything. They said, shut up. We'll tell you when you can talk. He took me to my house and he let me out. He said, you go in there and don't tell her what's wrong with her. I said, what? He said, you go in that house and you don't tell her what's wrong with her. I said, if I don't tell her, who's going to tell her? <laughs> Somebody needs to tell her what's wrong with her. He said, I don't know who it's going to be, but it's not going to be you. You're going to go in there and shut up. And I'm going to come and get you, and we'll go to a meeting. And I went up and knocked on the door. She came to the door. I said, i got to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous every day for the rest of my life. What are you going to do? She said, I've been going down and on. The kid's been going down the teen. The dog's going down the dog. And the cat's going down the cat. Stupid. Get on in there. <laughs> and they released me. They released me. They didn't care. They started going to meetings for themselves. And my sponsor would take me to meetings. I had so many guns on me, if you bumped into me, there would have been a mushroom cloud. I had problems. I had problems. You know, I, my kind of alcoholic, when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't just come in here because I threw up on my new shoes. I got problems. I had waves of the past following me. I came in here. I had pe I owed money. Lots and lots of money. People, you can't. I'll write. I hear some guy. I'll write them a letter and tell them I'll send them $50 a month. If I write them a letter and they find out where I'm at, you better not be sitting next to me because it's going to splatter on you. <laughs> Waves of the past. I had two groups of people that wanted to kill me. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what to do about any of that stuff. I was living in that house that was just tortured. The whole family was just tortured. I didn't know what to do about anything. I owed all this money. I owed over $250,000. And I didn't know what to do about it. And I just went to meetings. My sponsor said, go to meetings. Get in the car. I went. My sponsor pulled up out in front of the house one day. And I walked out there. I've been sober maybe 9,800 days. And I leaned down in the window and I said, where are we going? He drove off. Whoa! <laughs> I talk, I said, you drove off? He said, I know. He said, if you think you need to know where we're going, you don't need to go. <laughs> Damn, they had a lot of smart stuff. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
They just put me in a car. Get in the car. Shut up. And I went to meetings, 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 meetings. I'd go home, and I couldn't tell her what was wrong with her, and I was sitting in there. I worked the steps. I washed the cups. I set up the chair. I was uh, everything but the delegate. I volunteered for everything. I ran for everything. I, I went to a meeting that was faltering badly, and they couldn't afford to buy a cake, so I made a plaster Paris cake. They, they could, couldn't eat it, but they could use it every week, you know, save money. <laughs> I was a quick thinker. Yeah. I was standing down at this old uh, meeting hall, and uh, I was doing pretty good. I was sober long enough to get a car. You know how now tell an alcoholic's doing good? They got a car. How you doing? Look at my car. Look at my car. There's my car. I had a Mark IV Lincoln. Had a hood longer than a horse dream. Big emblem up there. Had 104,000 miles on it, but it was my car. I had a license tag that said AA car. <laughs> I'm moving right along in sobriety, and this guy come up to me. Weird guy. I'd seen him in a meeting night before. He was a treasurer in the meeting the night before, and they asked for a treasurer's report, and he said, I stole all the money, and I ain't paying it back. He come up to me. He said, will you be my sponsor? I said, oh, jeez. I mean, this guy wasn't short enough to be a midget or tall enough to be a man. He had an old Weller's hat pulled down over one ear, and he painted his feet black with shoe polish so it looked like he had socks on. I said, you do that with your underwear, too? He said, yeah, I don't like doing laundry. I was so crazy. And my sponsor would stand over in the corner, and when people, newcomers would come in, he'd grab them. And he'd point at me. He said, see that guy over there? If you keep drinking, you're going to end up just like him. <laughs> I was the group's best, worst example. I went over to my sponsor. I said, see that guy over there? He said, yeah. I said, he just asked me to be his sponsor. My sponsor said, yeah, I know. I sent him over. You go over and do exactly what he said. Now, that don't make sense to me today. But I didn't want to argue with my sponsor because when you argue with their sponsor, the vein in their head pulsates and they spit all over you and you got to make amends to them later. And I went back over to that guy and said, my sponsor says i got to be your sponsor. What do you want to do? He said, I want to ride home in your car. <laughs> so you go out that door, I'll go out this door. He said, no, I want to go with you. And he grabbed me by the arm. We go walking out. We get over by the door. Two guys standing in the door jam over there. And he points at me and says, that's my new sponsor. I said, don't tell people I'm your sponsor. <laughs> they just looked at us and said, boy, it's going to be fun to watch you two grow. <laughs> we get in the car and he says, how about this? You ever do anything like this? And he's telling me this stuff. Sick stuff. Sick, sick stuff. And he said, you ever do anything like that? And I said, yeah. <laughs> I started telling him some of my stuff. He said, whoa, dude, we're sick. We need to go to a meeting. I said, we're going to a meeting. I take him home after the meeting. He, I said, I'll be back to get you tomorrow. Come back to get him. He looked like he just stood inside the door. I said, why don't you call me here? He said, I did. How you doing? <laughs> Gets in my car. He said, how about this? And he started telling me some more sick stuff. I mean sick, really sick, sick stuff. He said, you ever do anything like that? I said, yeah, I did. <laughs> a couple of things I had to lie about because, you know, you can't let them one-up you. You know. <laughs> Next day I picked him up, he said, I know you lied to me last night because it's physically impossible to do what you said you did. I tried. <laughs> I took him to hear a great, great speaker. I took him to hear a speaker talk a lot about God. Chuck Chamberlain wrote a new pair of glasses. Old Chuck was down there laying it out. Chuck was laying God out. It was so thick, it was just like syrup on a hot cake. 
And we're sitting in the front row. And he looks at me and he says, man, we need help. I said, what are you talking about? Shut up, we're listening to this guy. Well, afterwards we get out in my car and he said, we need a miracle. So we're not gonna make it if we don't get a miracle. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I'm talking about a parting of the water, a burning bush, something. We need a sign. I'm thinking if I had some lighter fluid, I'd torch the hedge over there. <laughs> Best I could do, I had a 45 automatic in the glove box. I got her out, run around in chambers, tuck it upside his head, and I said, I'm going to count to 10, you pray. <laughs> if I don't have a floating resentment decide to pop a cap on your ass, you just did step three. <laughs> and we hung right on through that one. And then he jumped out of the car, went back in there where my sponsor was, rat-finked on me, and showed my sponsor that ring on the side of his head where I put the barrel of that 45 automatic. My sponsor said, yeah, I know. Ain't he spiritual? <laughs> now, you can laugh it off. Me and that guy are still sober continuously. So don't, don't question the method. You just don't know what kind of bent fenders I get to work with. I get the worst of the worst. I'm at home one time and told Sue, I said, how come all the crazies come and ask me to be their sponsor? She goes, duh. <laughs> that guy showed up over my house. He showed up over my house. He, I'd moved out of the old house, got a new house with a concrete driveway. That's moving up, baby, let me tell you. Didn't have no oil streaks on it or nothing. And I go to the door, and here's this guy. He's got his old van parked in my newcomer, parked it all into my driveway, running all down my driveway. I said, what do you want? He's got a big book with paper all stuck in it. He said, I want to work the steps the way you did. I'm trying to remember how I did them. I knew I did them. <laughs> I was moved on into the 14th step. That's where you get a gi and sit in the middle of the floor naked and hum. <laughs> so I had this half gi on. I was naked from the waist down, and I had this gi on, and I was sitting in the middle of the floor humming, waiting for some transcendental meditation to come by and scoop me up. And here this guy's at my door. He wants to work the steps. I said, well, I know I'm powerless. I know my life's unmanageable, so you might as well come on in. He comes in, he looks at me. Whoa, hey, you going to put some clothes on? Yeah. <laughs> You're crazy and I'm crazy. We understand each other. I said, we're at step three. He said, you going to put that gun up in my head? I said, no. <laughs> we're going to go in the kitchen and uh, get on our knees and say the third step prayer. He said, you going to put some underwear on before we do that? <laughs> I cuddled up next to him and I got that tingling sensation, you know. Everybody's <laughs> hugging around here. The cat walked by and looked at us weird. I went and put some clothes on, come back. He threw that big book over there on the table and a bunch of blank paper. I said, what's that? He said, that's my fourth step. So really, you're supposed to have that written out when you get to the sponsor's house. He said, I can't read or write. He threw me a pencil. He said, I'll tell you what. I'll talk and you write. And he starts talking and I start writing. And then he said, do you ever do anything like that? And I remembered some stuff. He can't read or write. We invited God in the room. I'll just put some of my stuff in his. What the heck? <laughs> hey, I want to tell you something, baby. When God sends the dumpster, dumpster, don't wait for the tugboat. Put it in the trash, baby. Put it in the trash. Don't wait for the sign. Get rid of that crap. Don't carry it around no more. And I put all that stuff in there, and he jumped up and kissed me on the cheek, and we burnt that one. Yeah. We burnt that one. He ran out in the front yard. It waved real big in front of God and everybody and said, I love you, and now the neighbors know. <laughs> and, uh, he went down the street, but standing in my front yard that day, it went from the head to the heart. It went from the head to the heart. 
That's the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't look for something that's not here. The magic of Alcoholics Anonymous is one drunk talking to another. I'm so grateful for the old timers that had the knowledge and the wisdom to wait until a guy like me was ready to implode with sobriety, just ready to implode. And they reached out and snatched me up and put me with another alcoholic and gave me a purpose. And I've been doing that ever since. And that's the magic of my life. My life's never been so good. I've had surrenders. I've had surrenders. I've had a five-year surrender, 10-year surrender, 15-year surrender, 20-year surrender, 25-year surrender, 30-year surrender, and I'm headed, I guess, for another one because that's the only way I go to my God. Dr. T. Bouton, the alcoholic comes of age, says the alcoholic ego must be smashed again and again and again and again. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I've had the willingness to change. The willingness to change. And all my life I was afraid of change. I was afraid of change. All my life I had all the facades, all the toys, all the costumes, all the things to be the meanest man on the face of the earth. All my life. All I was was a scared little boy that grew up to be a scared little boy. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm the meanest man on the face of the earth. I'm him. You're looking at him. You know who he is? He's that little guy who lives down the street. And get up in the morning and put on a clean set of clothes. Take a shower, put on clean underwear, put on your clothes, walk in the kitchen. You don't have to kick the dog or the cat. You can go in there and kiss your family goodbye, get out in your car, drive down the street. You don't have to flip the crosswalk lady off. You can go to that job and put a day's work in, not steal any time. And you can come home in the afternoon and take a nap. For a speed freak to take a nap is a spiritual experience. And at the end of the week, you get that check, that little check, my first check. I looked at that thing. I made more in 15 minutes on the street than I did working all week. But it was mine. It was mine. See, it takes guts to do that. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to be a husband or a father or a provider. I, was, I had to learn those things in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm grateful that the people who loved me and cared enough for me could see that I was willing to be teachable that I could make my amends. I had to pay that money back. It took me 14 years of sobriety to pay my financial amends back. I did not have an overwhelming good feeling about it. I didn't go whoopee. I did it. It was a lot of money. And I'm grateful that my wife had a job and took care of the family so that my, my money could go to make those financial amends. I borrowed some money from a guy who had a lot of money because I needed to consolidate and get this thing put in the right place. And the guy was a, a banker. I grew up with him. When we were little kids down in the park, I jerked his pants down in front of the girls. And he remembered that. <laughs> and here I am, 37 years sober. I walk into his bank and I said, I need about a quarter million dollars. I'm sober now and I need to make amends. And he said, I heard that. And he said, uh, you remember that day down in the park? <laughs> yeah. He said, well, I haven't forgotten that either. And he tossed me a checkbook. He said, you start writing checks. You make your financial amends. When you're done, you call me and tell me you're done. And we'll set up a payment plan. And you'll pay me as I tell you to. And if you miss one payment, I'm going to kill you. Oh, that's an incentive. <laughs> I mean, if I don't pay them, they're going to kill me. If I do pay them, hey, all right. And I made every payment. I made every payment to that man. I paid the people off. I made every payment to that man. Except the last one. The very last one was right before Christmas. And, and I wanted to get me some family stuff and everything. And I called him up and I said, dude, I got the money to make the payment. 
But it's going to be a lean Christmas. The only way I could move this on over into January, he said, you missed that payment, I'm going to kill you. I meant what I said, and I paid him. The important thing about that I want to share with you, if I would have been able to slide on those debts, had I been able to slide on those debts, I would never have worked myself into the capacity of earning that I had by working and making those payments to that guy. By the time 14 years sober and I, 15 years sober there and I made those financial amends, I was making more money than I ever would have thought about doing if had I not had those debts. And I was able to provide for my family in a very good way at that time. Uh, I'm not without character defects. Everybody's got character defects. With me, my character defects don't bother me a bit. If it don't pay, if I don't pay any attention, if it don't bother me, it may be driving you nuts. But if it don't bother me, it's not a character defect. It's a character trait. <laughs> and uh, I had me some character defects that made some people real uneasy. I'd been involved with organized crime. I'd been involved with organized crime for well over 20 years when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I had been involved with people from downtown, downtown, baby, let me tell you. And when I sobered up, I just about destroyed everything, like I said. And uh, I started making these amends. I started doing the right things in Alcoholics Anonymous. I never brought that element into Alcoholics Anonymous. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous as an alcoholic. And I sat in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got a job and I started working. And the people that I owed money to and the people I'd been associated with, by the time I was seven, eight, nine years sober, uh, Pretty obvious to me I might have to make amends for the way I was making amends. And at 10 years sober, I was indicted by a federal grand jury for organized crime, involvement with organized crime. No big deal. I wasn't a big deal. It was just that at 10 years sober, I had me a get down, come, let's talk about it, surrender. And uh, boom, it hit me. And what they tried to do is convict me with four other people, and they tried to treat me as though I were an uh, informant in front of my uh, associates. And I was 10 years sober. I was working, Sue was going to Al-Anon, my daughter was going to Alateen. 10 years sober, my world stopped. My world stopped. I was active in Alcoholics Anonymous, sponsored a lot of guys, and all of a sudden the FBI is over at my house. They got my wife and kid on the floor, and uh, they took everything out of the house, and I'm looking at some major time. And uh, I had to get a lawyer, and I had to take care of business. And uh, I had a job, I lost that job. Uh, a lot of things happened to my world just stopped. I didn't wake up one morning at 10 years sober and say, I think I just want to surrender so I can get spiritual. It caught up with me. You see, there was some things. I, I worried about my character defects simply because if I have a character defect and I sober up and I stop it and I put it down and I go some period of sobriety and I pick it up again, then I can pick up a drink. I can pick up a drink. The problem I had was that I never stopped some of my character defects when I sobered up. I never stopped them because they didn't bother me and they were some of my assets. And what happened to me at 10 years sober, my whole world stopped. The guys I sponsored fired me. People in Alcoholics Anonymous turned their back on me. There's two kind of old timers in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's the kind of old timers that'll sit in here and watch you and you'll be running around here doing all your stuff. And then when you have a surrender, they'll say, about time you got your ass fried, boy. Well, they're necessary. 
But there's people in Alcoholics Anonymous that will say, come go with me. I've been here just like you. That believe that 10 years sober is just as important to save as 10 days. I believe that years of sobriety, people sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, dying with years of sobriety, afraid to let people know they're hurting. And I'm grateful for them old-timers that came and got me at 10 years sober and said, come go with me. And they walked me through that. And they told me when I went to that federal grand jury hearing, don't answer the questions that aren't asked. How's that? Don't answer the questions that aren't asked. All your life, you've rationalized and justified your behavior at the expense of other people. Just don't answer the questions that aren't asked. And I went in that courtroom and I stood before those people and I didn't do anything. It worked out. But I walked out of that hall room and walked beside the four other guys that were going in that courtroom after me and I gave them the high sign because I'm no rat fink and I didn't roll over on nobody. Just because I'm a weak little alcoholic and I had FBI guys say, I'm going to make you drink, asshole. All that wanted, made me want to do is stay sober more. And I walked down that hallway and I got the respect that I deserve. I got the dignity of a sober alcoholic to walk my walk and talk my talk. I am so grateful, so grateful for the old timers and Alcoholics Anonymous who stuck with me and taught me how to walk as a sober man with the dignity of a sober alcoholic. And I walked out of that courtroom. I didn't have to do any time, neither did anybody else. It wasn't a big thing. But I found out that every good thing in my life is preceded by a wall of fear. And I must walk through those walls of fear to get on the other side in order to get the good, in order to get God. And I've had to walk through many, many, many walls of fear in order to get the spiritual muscles, the spiritual muscles that I have today, that I walk on those streets out there and I hang my head before no one, that I answer to my God. My God has given me the strength to hold my head up out on that street. The strength to carry the message and carry hope. Hope is simply, simply a vision beyond your present circumstances. Whatever your circumstances are sitting here tonight, hope is a vision beyond your present circumstances. Let me give you hope. I'll give you an example. I go into a lot of prisons. I do a lot of H&I work. I, fig I figure for me... I've been doing this for 30 years, but I'm going to tell you something. If I'm out here on Saturday night standing at this podium talking like this, we do this 30 or more times a year, I better be somewhere on Wednesday night that's going to give me a little humility. And I always go in them jails and them institutions because that is down in the trenches. And I've been going to the California Institution of Women, and Sue has two for over 26 years. I've had an AA panel in the CIW, and she's had a... Uh, an Al-Anon panel in CIW for over 26 years and I've gone into every prison I'm cleared in six different states to go into prisons in six different states and we go into all kinds of prisons all over and do a lot of prison work and, and not too long ago Christmas time last year I went into a prison and they were going to have a banquet and in this banquet they brought all the people the church people everybody into this room a, a, a gathering room before we go in and the inmates serve you a Christmas dinner. And I had a toothache. I mean, I had a toothache that would kill a mule. I didn't want to go out there. I'd been going out there, but I, this was Christmas. And 
the, the inmates were excited about his coming, and I had this throbbing toothache. Now, when I got a physical problem, I'll back in the corner because I'm weak. And I don't want anybody to know I'm hurting. And I'd gone out to this prison. I was in this waiting room with 900 other people, my wife and people I sponsor and other people. And I'm hunkered down in that room, and my tooth is throbbing. Wah, wah. Now, I've been going out there for a long time, and there's a preacher man come out there. A young preacher man who had a church over there in town not too far away. And I would see him bringing the word of God in there to those inmates. And he'd see me. I'm going to AA meeting. He's going to church. And he's a nice young man. I'd talk to him a little bit. That night I'm over there with this tooth throbbing. And I'm back in the corner. And if you come around me, some, something's going to happen. And I, I look up and here comes that preacher. He comes walking right up to me. And I said, preacher man, you've got to help me. I've got a toothache that will kill a mule. I'm dying in here. I've got to go in here and I'm going to be a part of the AA thing, of Christmas thing. And I've got this toothache that's just dying. You've got to pray for me. Whoa, this preacher man grabbed me. Praise God. Jesus, come into this man's life. Help him. Help him so that he can do your work. He screamed that out in that room. 900 people in there. No, I, I didn't mean that. <laughs> He prayed on me. He prayed on me big time. And I'm standing in there. And, and then he turned around. And they blew the whistle and everybody went their way. And I'm standing in there and Sue comes up. Where we go? We go over in there where the inmates were that we were supposed to be with from AA. And I sit down. Person, they're doing a little program thing. And I remember looking at my wife. I was still in the corner because I, I didn't want to get messed with. And it dawned on me my tooth ain't hurting. And I yelled at him, my tooth's not hurt. That preacher prayed for me. My tooth's not hurt. And we did the thing. And I went home. I got on the phone called my sponsor. I said, hey, sponsor, I was over there at that prison. And my tooth was killing me. And that preacher came over. He said, describe that preacher. I said, he's that young guy over there. He said, I know him. I know his church. My sponsor's sober 51 years. He knows everybody. And he said, what happened? I said, he prayed on me. He yelled out, Jesus, come into this man's life and remove this pain so he can do your work. I said, he embarrassed me. He said, did it work? I said, it worked. It worked. The, the pain went away. He said, well, you know why that was? I said, why? He said, because you believe. Oh. He said, you better get an appointment tomorrow and get that tooth out. <laughs> so I did. I did. The only problem is that that's only half the deal, see? It's just like a fourth step. The fifth step is that I need to see that preacher and tell him it worked for it to make full circle. And I went back to that prison. I went back to that prison not too long after that. I'm sitting in that prison, in that waiting room. And here come that preacher in there. He walked right up to me. I got a couple of guys with me. I said, preacher man, you remember that night in here? He said, I remember that night. Remember when you prayed for me? Prayed on me? Prayed about me? I said, it worked. The pain went away. He said, well, of course it did. You know why that did? Because you believed. You believed in me, and you believed in God. And God got the things out of the way so that you could do his work. He said, I hope you went to the dentist got that tooth out, and don't ask me to do that again. <laughs> but I'm here tonight. Let me tell you something. If you're new or relatively new, if you're sitting here and you've got problems in your life, if you will believe as I believe, it'll work for you too. God bless and thank you.